listening to the podcast. I'd love for you to listen to the podcast. Uh, subscribe to me on social media. Uh, when the time comes, we're here for you um, with training and stuff like that. So, but that's not what today is about for me. Um, I think the most important message I always have is, look, we're dealing with difficult times and, and they were difficult. If you asked me three weeks ago, we're dealing with insurance companies. We're dealing with a different generation. We're dealing with Sparta consumers. We're dealing with just a sheer volume of competitors. But ultimately, to me, uh, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's bioterrorism, ult- ultimately, you have to believe in yourself. And um, the biggest investment you'll ever make is you. Um, and that, to me, is there's no better time to deal with that than right now. Uh, we know, depending on where you're at, um, no matter what, that you're going to have between two to six weeks off from your practice. In other words, you're not going to be seeing regularly seeing patients. And so for me, what that means is there's little to no excuse to not invest in yourself. And investing in yourself doesn't mean spending money. Uh, it just means learning, clarifying who you are, where you want to be, uh, and, and resetting uh, kind of where you're going to go. And I think it's important to know that, uh, you know, my practice isn't very different from each of yours. You know, yes, I'm 20 years into practice. I'm 44 years old. Yes, I've uh, financially done pretty well. I'm not wealthy by any means. Um, I've been smart and saved enough money to weather many different storms. uh, But it always hasn't been like that. I do take insurance. I do deal with a lot of team members. We're two-doctor practice. Uh, so, so I have some level of understanding of some of these things, um, but <clears throat> I want to take some time on on this slide. And I think uh, to the startup market, I think um, this is a very important slide. And uh, I read an article by Oprah, and she talked about before she did every interview or any meeting, she always tried to answer three questions, and that's what's our intention, what's important, and what matters. And I call that part of the clarity process. And I think too many of us, and I put myself into that as well, is we're not clear about who we really are trying to be. We are having a hard time with this with social media because one day you'll see somebody like me and you'll try to do it my way. And the next day you'll see somebody else and try to do it a little bit of another way. But ultimately at the end, you've got to do it your way. And whatever it is that you want to be or... Um, how you want to run your practice or what you want to try to get to, you've got to get ultra clear about that. Uh, you got to stop working for other people. you got to stop working to pay other people or to pay your team or to hold it. It's got to be about you uh, more than anything else. And so today I really want to talk about um, case acceptance. And uh, again, to try to get clear about what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it is I want to ask the question, what are we trying to fix? And um, for me right now, what I want to fix is I want to install or share with you a system or process that we're using in our practice that helps reduce accounts receivable. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, no matter how good we are, what we think, we have patient accounts receivables. And that's usually stems from patients not knowing how much things cost or patients not being able to afford how much things are. Um, and so we want to minimize our accounts receivable. Uh, we, want our, we want to give our patients a process that allows them to say yes to the best. And what that means to me is um, being able to have patients, giving them choices to be able to 
do more dentistry. And then part of it, uh, the third part is we want to enroll more patients in dentistry. In other words, uh, we're tired of hearing no all the time. So how do we take that percentage and go from, you know, I think 90% of our patients say no. And how do we go to from 90% saying no to 85% saying no or 80% saying no? And how big of a difference would that make in our practice? And then sometimes you got to slow down uh, before you speed up. And there's no better time uh, than now to slow down because we've pretty much slowed down all the way. There isn't much more slowing down that we can do. Um, and I'll, I'll run through some of this a little bit quickly. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I'm not so worried about my practice right now, um, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm worried, but not so worried, uh, has to do with the fact that I believe that um, while my practice personally is really built on implant sleep and ortho, that's pretty much what I'm doing in the practice. Uh, but the practice, the business as a whole is 70% general dentistry. And by having a good foundational base in general dentistry, it allows me to pick and choose the advance in the emotional dentistry where I kind of play in the practice. But I know that if things got really tough or if things don't turn around the way we hope they turn around, that I can go back to being a traditional general dentist and have a good foundational patient base. So one, one message I'll give you from 20 years in practice, uh, being my own owner, is to always keep your eye on the the, the piece that always stays stable, and that's the general dentistry. Take care of your hygiene. In other words, make sure that you have a good foundational base there. And then our goal as a business is to increase revenue. And, you know, we have three ways we can increase revenue. Way number one is we can raise fees, um, and that's always a great option. Uh, but the challenge with raising fees, at least for me, and I'm sure for many of you, is that... Um, <clears throat> is that uh, like I'm with MetLife or Delta you know, I can charge $3,000 for a crown, but they're still going to pay $680. So a lot of this raising fees uh, in a practice like mine where 85% of my patients have dental benefits, uh, the raising fees doesn't really work. Uh, the other option, which I'm not a big fan of, is seeing more patients. Now, that may be a little bit different in a startup group because you, you have capacity that you're not filling. But I don't believe that seeing more patients is a sustainable way of uh, building your career, especially if you desire to have a career where you're doing more advanced and complicated dentistry. Uh, and, and the other way which we focus on is doing more dentistry on our existing patients, whether that's by doing more of the dentistry in a single visit or by doing more procedures or having more products on the shelf uh, with our existing patients. So I want to skip through some of this real quick. And, and this is a, a survey from 2018 that I did. Um, and it shows us about what percentage of practices are doing uh, what types of dentistry. And I call it the bottom five and top five. Uh, the real opportunity in our profession is to learn and to do more of the bottom five procedures. And that's socket preservation. Now that starts with root canals, even though that's in the top five. Socket preservation, dental implants, orthodontics, sleep apnea therapy, and providing some type of sedation to our team. And, you know, the truth is, is the reason that many of us, the two reasons that we're not doing more of that stuff. One is we don't have the skill set to do it. And uh, with access to education today through YouTube, through Google, through study clubs, through, you know, courses like what we teach, there's no excuse not to have the education. Uh, whether you have money or don't have money, there is access to education uh, today. Um, 
But I think the bigger reason that we're not doing more of that type of dentistry is we don't have a consumer-driven buying process. In other words, we don't really have a way that's repeatable and predictable that helps patients make choices and choose to do more of this elective dentistry. We have mindsets that are driven around dental insurance and how insurance affects everything. And we have that mindset in it and patients. So I want to kind of walk through that mindset or that process of how we're doing it in our office. And I think um, today the most important thing to do is to recognize that in our practices, we don't have a case acceptance problem. We have a diagnosis and communication problem. Um, if we had 5 to 10% case acceptance in our practice of the dentistry that needs to be done, uh, we'd have more dentistry than we know what to do with. There's no question about it. Uh, I'll use some basic examples. Um, if the average practice, let's say, has 2,000 patients in it, uh, and about a third of those patients are missing a single functional tooth, that means you have about 660 patients missing a single, single functional tooth. And if you had 10% of them say yes, uh, you'd do 66 implants a year. If you only had a 5% case acceptance, you'd do 30 to 35 implants per year. And the average implant from start to finish in this country is in the $3,500 ballpark. So you're talking about a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars in revenue for your practice. So really, it's not we, we focus so much on case acceptance, but really, the crutch of it is we're not giving our patients a chance to say yes enough, and then we're not communicating in a way that helps them understand and make a decision to say yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, any questions or anything I can answer, Ashley, Michael, or do I just need to keep going? Um, right now, there's no question. There's a question about liability insurance, but that's, I don't know if you want to answer yeah, that. Yeah, dude. Here's what I'm going to tell people about worrying about. The government's going to take care of us, okay? There's no question about it. So I would tell people to stop wasting time worrying about what the government's going to do because who knows what the hell, when they're going to do it. But they'll, they'll figure it out. We're not going to go broke uh, in this deal. I mean, this is uh, something we just got to have faith in it and stop instead of wasting our time worrying about all of that, let's focus on getting ready for what's going to happen three, four, five weeks from now when we're ready to get back to work. So but that, that's just me being me. So I apologize if I hurt somebody's feelings in saying that. So, um, um, so anyway, so our, our case acceptance workflow is pretty simple. We have four steps. Uh, the step one is diagnosis. Without question, the most important part of it, uh, we've got to diagnose patients. We've got to help them see what we see. And then the second part of it is having a great process for influential communication. In other words, being able to help our patients and communicate to them the the need for doing this without being very pushy or being very salesy. Uh, The the third step of that is then having a firm financial arrangement and process to help patients afford the dentistry that they want to do. Because the truth is the patients want to do the dentistry. Oftentimes the words we say and then the money part of it gets in the way. And then the fourth part of a great case acceptance workflow uh, that I don't think enough of the consultants or speakers or teachers or people are talking about is the importance of reverse engineering scheduling. And, um, and so I want to kind of cover each of those things here today. So let's walk through diagnosis. Uh, and remember, again, diagnosis is the most important part. So in our practice, our baseline diagnostic records, in other words, what we take for all new patients when they walk into the practice is a 3D CBCT. 
and if you don't have one of those, I totally understand. In a startup phase, it may not make economical sense. Uh, then you would replace that with a Panorex. Um, <clears throat> a seven intraoral x-rays, we take four posterior bite wings, two upper anterior PAs, and one lower anterior PA. And then we take six photographs. Uh, and the truth is, is uh, photography to me should probably, quite frankly, be number one on this list. It is the one thing that will dramatically change your practice. So I do want to spend a little bit of time on photography. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, photography is something I started when I started my practice, before I started my practice, when I was an associate. And it's really helped build my speaking career. So photography is super important. So these are the uh, six photographs we take. Uh, they're all taken by our team members on new patients. We take a full face. Uh, when I say background, in other words, we're not taking them sitting in the chair. We're taking them standing against the wall. Uh, we take a smile photograph, a retracted photo. Uh, using retractors so that we can see their incisal edges so the mouth is opened a little bit. We take an upper arch photograph, a lower arch photograph, and a hygiene photograph. And then I'll walk through this. So here's our team taking the photos. This is from uh, 2003. So you can kind of tell from the (laughs) the dress of people. My office looks very different from that today. Um, And here's a face photo. Uh, Here's a smile photo. Here's an example of the retracted with the incisal edges showing. Here's an example of an arch, upper arch photo. And here's an example of a lower arch photo. And this is not the same patient, but an example of a hygiene photograph. So you can let the patient see what we're doing. And I think a lot of times patients don't see this photograph. They don't see where their buildup is. And there's two spots where patients get the most buildup. One is the linguals of the lower anteriors and the buckles of the upper molars, uh, where we have salivary glands and we have a tendency to trap more food and plaque. Um, And then part of the goal with all of this is to be able to put all this information together and to be able to present it to our patient. So that way you can have a photograph, you can have a a 2D x-ray, you can have a 3D x-ray, and you can kind of put this all together so that visually you can help your patient see exactly what's going on in their mouth so that it's not you telling them what's going on, but instead they're seeing what's happening. And then the the second aspect or another aspect of photography is you've got to find a way to show it to your patient, whether you're using software like this to show it to your patient or you're going super old school and simple and you're just printing it out on paper and doesn't have to be photo paper. It can be regular paper, but it doesn't need to be in color. And that way your patients can see and they can leave with something and you can, you can kind of circle and mark on this stuff, what they're seeing. Like, like in this particular picture, we can put in there that section number one is that area. You know, then we're going to do section number two and then section number three. And this way, patients kind of get an idea of when and where and what uh, they're going to be doing on all of this stuff. What software so, do you use? Go ahead, Michael. What software do you use to show the patients? Uh, so we're using EagleSoft in our practice. So uh, uh, they have EagleSoft imaging. So we uh, use that to show our pictures and our 2D pictures. All of that's built in there. Uh, for our 3Ds, we're using Sedexis, which is a Densply Serona product, uh, because we have their cone beam. And uh, so we use that for our 3Ds. Uh, but for the most part, it's just uh, to simple EagleSoft, Dentrix, Open Dental. I think those three pretty much cover the 99% of the market. Uh, they all have imaging packages that allow you to uh, put uh, photographs and x-rays into a single file for the patient. And then it's a matter of creating a template that allows you to then switch between them and kind of go through the photographs for your patients. 
Gotcha, gotcha. All right, thank you. Yeah, so uh, photography uh, has been without question the number one practice builder in our practice. If you do nothing from anything I ever say other than just start taking some pictures of every patient, and when I say every patient, I mean every single patient that walks into your practice, you will see a increase in your business. And the level of increase in your business will be directly correlated to how many and how often the photographs you take with your patients and actually show them to your patients. It's irrelevant if you take the photos and don't do anything with them. You got to show them to your patient. That's a non-negotiable. Another aspect is doing 3D diagnostics. In other words, you know, taking these 3D and showing them to your patient. There's a wow factor associated with that. And there's a significantly deeper diagnostic factor associated with that. That's very important as well. So um, that's important uh, to let your patients see in 3D. And, and one of the reasons that we're all drawn to this technology is because it allows us to diagnose better. So I'm a big believer and taking 3Ds on quote-unquote everybody. Um, and then our fee, for, I don't let the fee of the, the 3D get in the way. We'll charge it out as a Panorex because it does, does produce a reconstructed pan. And then if necessary, I'll take it at no charge just because I need to be able to see and communicate with our patients. Another thing that we're doing, and again, I, I hesitate to show some of these things, um, uh, because I don't want to overwhelm in the startup phase that this is what you have to do. And I think it, it's super important for people to understand that that I'm 20 years in, so I'm 20 years ahead of many of you, but you can fast forward all the things that took me 20 years to do. You can fast forward and condense into a faster period of time. Uh, and so today we're moving towards, we have four digital impression machines in our practice. We have two prime scams, two iteros, <clears throat> and we're moving towards taking digital impressions on all of our patients when they come in for new patient exams. Um, and that allows us now to have a documentation of what's going on uh, slowly over time. It'll allow us to get rid of taking the photographs because in theory, once you have these things in color today, uh, we'll be able to, it's like having a photograph, you'll be able to zoom in, you'll be able to move things around. It's really the next evolution of photographs for our practice. So we're taking those. And some of the things that that allows us to do is uh, we can do an outcome simulator uh, with PrimeScan. You do that with Seric uh, Ortho software. With iTera, you do that with the Invisalign outcome simulator. and allows you to show your patient while they're in the chair um, exactly what something like this would look like. And again, the more, the more at-bats you get, the more patients are going to be interested, the more seeds you plant, and then the more you know, harvest you get from that over time. Uh, we can't live in a mentality, we got to get it now. Remember, 90% of your patients are going to say no right now. And then a, a good portion of those patients will come back to you over time, as long as you don't put a lot of pressure on them. Another area of taking digital impressions is the ability to overlay pictures over time. So you can see gum loss, you can see tooth wear, you can start overlaying these things together over time. And again, all of these things are about building upon each other to get your patients to a better step. So Right there, we talked about three things in the diagnosis phase. We talked about the most important and easiest thing and non-negotiable thing that you can do, and that is taking photographs. Um, and I've tried to give you a nice, simple system there of six photographs that you take on every comprehensive exam that you do. We talked about CBCT or 3D imaging, uh, when and if your practice is ready for that. 
Um, and then we talked about having digital impressions again, when and if your practice is ready for that and how we're using that, not just on the restorative side, but I think the real value now for digital impressions isn't the restorative aspect of it. It's more of the diagnostic aspects of it. And I think I wish more speakers and companies would get on board with talking about that. Mm-hmm. So, um, how often are you taking a full mouth series then, or are you not? What is a full mouth series? You mean like 18,000 x-rays in the mouth? 18,000 x-rays? Yeah, zero. We, we don't ever take them. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I, so, so actually I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll answer a question with the question if you don't mind. Uh, what, what is the point of a full mouth series of x-rays? Uh, that is what we were taught in dental school. Well, I get it, right? So, so just because the guys from the 60s and 70s were doing it doesn't mean that we should be doing it in 2020. But really, the, the, the point of a full mouth series of x-rays, number one is to detect decay. Uh, number two is to check for bone loss. Uh, number three is to look for any type of apical pathology, correct? So uh, we're still detecting decay by taking our seven intraoral x-rays. But then our bone loss and our apical pathology is easily seen in the CBCT, in the 3D. So for us in our practice, um, there's, there's no value. The only reason we take intraoral x-rays in our practice today is because we can't, we can't confidently and accurately diagnose decay with CBCT due to beam hardening and scatter. So for, for us, uh, there's no point in taking a full mouth series because we have a cone beam. Mm. So how often are you, um, are you taking a cone beam then? I follow the Panorex guidelines, so every three to five years, depending on the insurance plan and as needed for the patient. So, for example, Ashley, if you came in today as a new patient exam, uh, we took a CBCT on you, and let's say six months from now, you lost a tooth or you know, whatever, I would take another CBCT because I need that to do the implant. Okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, um, one more question, T-Bone. Sure. How did you overlay the patient's face on your on your CBCT? Oh, that was, um, that was a company stock photograph. So uh, at one time, Dentsplice Rona sold a machine that had a face scanner built into it. Yeah. I, I don't know if they still sell it or not, uh, but they have some machines that have face scanners built into them. Okay. Um, a couple questions. Somebody yes. asked, Itero for hygienists and PrimeScan for docs? That is our current model right now, is that the prime scans are being used for restorative and sleep and uh, implant work. And uh, right now, our iTERs are being used for ortho and hygiene. Gotcha. And then also, how That's long current. Do you- I mean, that may change next week, next month, who knows? Yeah, that's true. How long do you take for the new patient exam, doctor side? Uh, a new patient visit is about 90, 90 minutes. Uh, so I, the new patient exam, I, mean, I spend five to 10 minutes on the exam myself, but the new patient visit's about 90 minutes. And all of that for us is driven through hygiene. So all our new patients come in through hygiene. Okay, okay. And then do you bill for a CBCT? Some insurance want an FMX before paying for SRP. Do you send the CBCT? Yeah, so... Um, those would be good questions. I can tell you what I believe is happening. <laughs> so uh, since I'm not the one doing the billing, mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, what we, we have not found perio coverage to be an issue between the CBCT 
the bite wings and photographs. We haven't found that to be an issue. Uh, and the question about billing the CBCT. So again, we I try to keep it. Very, I try to keep everything very simple. I don't jump over dollars to make pennies in my life. So I keep it very simple. Something that works for ninety percent of the time. And so we bill to dental insurance. We bill for the Panorex, which a CBCT produces a reconstructed Panorex. And now 12 years going, we haven't had an issue with that. And then we do bill the CBCT to medical insurance uh, for, uh, for potential coverage there. So I try to keep it simple. Even if the dental insurance pays for the CBCT, we don't know which ones do and don't. We don't bother to send the CBCT to dental insurance. Okay. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right, let's keep rolling. All right. Let's go back here. So now we've talked about diagnostics. Okay. So again, photographs, CBCT, digital impressions. Now we got to, com- now we got to communicate. Now we've created a, an awareness with our patients about what's going on, because not only do we capture this information, we shared this information to our patients. And I think um, that's important. Again, the sharing part. So now let's move into influential communication. And, and so much of this, I got to give a lot of credit to Paul Homley and so many others that I've learned this from. None, none, nothing's new under the sun. Uh, I went on a trip to Egypt in 2003, and the guy was always saying that to me. And I didn't understand what he meant until he started showing me some of the things that we saw in Egypt that were four or 5,000 years old. And basically, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing I'm saying is mine. It's just things I've learned and earned and kind of created and melded into mine. So communication is one of those things. Communication has to be something that's comfortable to you. It's not a script. It's a frame. I consider them frameworks, not scripts. And they require a lot of practice. And um, you got to practice. That means practicing in front of a mirror. That means role playing with team members. That means stupid things I would do is like role play with my friends when on the golf course, you know, by asking them questions and, and making myself uncomfortable uh, because I think it's that level of uncomfortableness that keeps us from communicating and asking patients to do stuff. Uh, we just have to ask sometimes. Uh, so, and part of influential communication uh, starts with uh, a pre-interview of the patient. In other words, having a new patient process in place where, in other words, we at some point, whether you do it fancily in a consult room or you do it while walking or you do it in the hygiene room, you just ask some patients some questions like, why are they here? What's going on in their life? What's important to them? Who they are? What, what they do? And all of these things are so important because it, it starts establishing fit. Uh, and what's going on in the patient's life and what's fitting in their life. So, for example, right now, you know, if, if you talk to many of your patients, uh, they may be getting ready to lose their job. So you have to not adjust your diagnosis based on that. You have to adjust what you prioritize for the patient uh, based on that. But you still have to give them a chance to say yes to the best. And understanding where your patient's at is super important. And then, again, I come back to some level of photography to be able to show your patients um, what you're talking about, what's going on, so that it's there's some proof to it. It's not just you telling them these things. There's some backup proof. So uh, on this on this um, influential communication, I'll go through three uh, different things that we talk about. One is permission and choice. Uh, two is patient fit, and then three is the some none all uh, framework. So. On the permission and choice, uh, I'm a big believer in getting permission before you do anything and then giving your patients a choice because ultimately there always is a choice. No matter what, your patient comes in 
with a broken tooth, broken down to the gum line, there's a choice. The choice is do nothing or take the tooth out. The patient comes in with the apical abscess. The choice is take the tooth out or do a root canal. And then there may be other choices that go along with that. So to me, permission is pretty simple. Uh, it would be something like, Ashley, would it be okay if I talk to you about what I see in your mouth? And then, you know, the, really it's, it's a very misleading question uh, because no, almost nobody's going to say, no, don't tell me about what you see in the mouth. That's why the hell they're in your practice is for you to tell them what's going on. They may not like what you see or they may want you to water down what you see, but getting that permission sets the stage for that. And then the choice part of it is, it would be something like this. So I'll give you a couple of different examples. Uh, in this first example, let's say Ashley has a, uh, a large filling that has a broken cusp on tooth number 19. You know, patient comes in and says, I broke part of my tooth. Case acceptance on something like that is pretty easy to do. Uh, but what the choice dialogue will do in this is the patient's also having also has an older restoration like an MO on tooth number 18 and the DO, uh, DOL on tooth number 20. Now, typically what most of us do is we diagnose what's easy, which is the crown on tooth number 19, but the choice dialogue would be something like this. It, it'd be um, in a very applicable way on, on what I consider basic dentistry. Um, is um, uh, Ashley, right now we've got, if you don't mind, Ashley, I'd like to go over what we're seeing with you. That's a permission. Ashley, we've got a broken tooth right here on the photograph. As you can see on the photograph here, um, we've got this broken tooth. And what we can do is this tooth needs a full coverage crown to cover the tooth and protect it. But one choice we can make in addition to that, we're noticing these other teeth right behind it and right in front of it that also have failing dentistry. And what we'd like to do is give you the option to go ahead and get it all taken care of in a single visit. Uh, it's totally up to you whether or not we do that, but it'll allow us to get it all done in a single visit. We'll have to numb you once, and that way you don't have to worry about this area for many years to come. And so that would be something... Uh, like a choice dialogue when it comes to a single tooth broken, but there's other dentistry going on around it. Uh, the choice dialogue on uh, option A, option B would be like, Ashley, uh, let's pretend your tooth was had a big endo in it, or sorry, had a big cavity that needs endo that may be extending down to the gum line or something like that, where it's questionable whether or not you want to save the tooth. Uh, a choice on something like that would be, Ashley, we have a decision to make. So when you say a decision to make, ultimately, that way they frame the question that somebody has a decision. Actually, we have a couple of choices. Choice number one, we can choose to save this tooth. To save this tooth, it's going to require us to, uh, to, do a, to go ahead and clean out the nerve, to get rid of the infection that's going on in your tooth, to build the tooth back up, to have a strong foundation, and then put something over the top of the tooth to cover and protect the tooth. Something like that may be in the uh, $2,000 ballpark. Uh, a second choice we have, Ashley, is if you say, hey, I'm not ready or wanting to do that, one choice is to just take the tooth out. Uh, and in that case, we'd literally take the tooth out and throw it away. And something like that might be in the 250 to $300 ballpark. Or another choice may be, Ashley, is if you say, hey, you know, I don't want to work on this tooth too many times over time, one choice may be to take the tooth out and look at replacing it with the dental implant. And something like that may be in the $4,000 ballpark start to finish. So that's kind of the permission and choice. That way you're consenting your patient, you're kind of going over the risk benefits and alternatives and all of that. <clears throat> patient fit is relatively straightforward in the sense that it's really understanding where your patient's at. 
you know, and, and, and just tell them, you know, uh, Ashley, this, you know, Ashley, I know you told me that right now there's a lot going on in the economy. You know, you're not in work right now and you're hoping to get back to work in a couple of months, but I wanted to make you aware of what I'm seeing so that way we can get prepared for what's coming down the road. And what that does is this is patient fit to me is really about avoiding that conversation. Like every time I come in, there's one more thing to do. And the truth is, is there's not reason to have it every time you come in, we can just take care of it all at one time. And so patient fit is setting that stage that six months from now or a year from now uh, that we're going to be, you know, we're setting the stage that this dentistry is going to need to come in. And sometimes for some of my older patients that are in their, you know, 50s, 60s, not that that's too far away from me, but, uh, you know, we, we talk to them about retirement and getting this done before that. You know, the, when is the fit? How does this fit into your life now? How does that fit into your life later? Um, so we have a lot of our younger patients, like they have grandparents that are willing to help them right now. So, you know, that's, that's what I mean by fit. And then the sum, none, and all uh, is really about when you try to avoid overwhelming the patient, uh, because sometimes one of the negatives that can happen in the method that I teach of saying yes to the best is that if we're not good in reading people and understanding the fit and having good communication skills, it's very easy for us to overwhelm patients, especially if you're running from chair to chair to chair, you're not getting that time to talk to them. So something like this would be uh, on like Ashley, the very first example, she's got a mouthful of older dentistry and, you know, I want to give her the chance to say yes to all of it uh, so that we can plan it all out. We may not execute it all at once, but we plan it all out is I would always end everything like that with a simple statement. Ashley, look, my job is to make a game plan for you. You know, tell you what what needs to be done, what's going on right now, what's priority now, what's coming down the road. But ultimately, it's your choice. You can choose to do some of it, none of it, or all of it. You can go as slow as you want or as fast as you want. You're in complete control. And I think it's about giving that power back to the patient so they understand. And then I kind of always follow that up with, regardless of what you decide, Ashley, I want to make sure that we go ahead and schedule for your next follow-up visit, your cleaning visit. So that way we can kind of keep an eye on these and we can help you prioritize. So that way patients don't have that feeling that if I don't do this dentistry, they don't want me back in the practice, which couldn't be further from the truth. So that that's kind of um, some ideas of influential communication there. And then so much of that is predicated on doing a great hygiene transfer. So I want to go back here. A lot of this is we're, tra- we're trained, uh, you know, and we're at different levels in our office. We have three different hygienists. And so we're training our hygiene team to have these conversations for the patients or pre-have these conversations. And then when it comes to the hygiene transfer, then they're trying to disseminate 45 minutes of information into a two to three minute uh, transfer to me. So that way I'm not asking the same questions over and over again uh, with our patients. So again, um, Tima? Yes. Hi. Um, can, you, can you role play for a minute um, so what do you, so I'm the patient and you just gave me all of those options. And then I, my response to you is, well, what does my insurance cover? Right. Yeah, great. That's a, a great, uh, great question to ask there. So what does my insurance cover? Ashley, that's a great question. Um, you know, Ashley, I, I, am I the doctor or the hygienist? You're the doc. Okay, great. Actually, it's a great question. Quite frankly, I can tell you this, uh, that each person has a different insurance. Uh, and what we can do is we can sit down with you and go over that. I can have my, one of my team members sit down with you and review that. But ultimately, Ashley, we're going to find a way to not let money get in the way of um, making this an issue. 
And so insurance to me is a, it's a more of a leading question for finances, correct? Yes. In other words, the patient's not. So the question ultimately is, the, does the patient believe that you need this? In other words, they're placing the insurance as the decider on what, what procedures need to be done or approved to be done. So that means that you haven't done a good job of helping them create the level of necessity on this, or insurance is a question based on finances. In other words, how do we help make this affordable? And uh, so that, that's typically how I answer that question is, you know, it's actually, it's, it's wonderful question that you have. We'll work, we'll work tirelessly to help your insurance company, um, help you get your benefits from your insurance company. Uh, but we'll find a way to help make this affordable and for you to fit into your life. Does that sound okay? Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. And I think, um, I think a lot of us are curious as to what the next step in your office would be. Like, do you, do you have your financial coordinator come into your operatory? Do you go to a consult room? Yeah. Both. <laughs> so, um, both. So, uh, and that's part of the, remember, that's part of what I call the buying process. The buying process starts, number one, with a pre-interview. In other words, figure out where the patient's at so that you can kind of know what's going on. The second part of that is you've got to have diagnostic skills to help transfer the ownership of their condition to the patient. And then you've got to have good communication skills to be able to help your patients move through the process of from unaware to aware or not caring to caring about their condition. And then the other part of that is, is what we're kind of moving into next will be the firm financial arrangements. And for us, we have treatment coordinators in our practice or people, you know, we can call them what the hell we want to call them. Um, we have people that uh, will sit down with the patient. So, um, so when we have an exam uh, that is going to be more involved, in other words, a patient has what I consider more than minor dentistry and minor dentistry is going to be defined very differently for me compared to you, just based on our skill sets, our comfort level and everything that's going on. Then we want our treatment coordinator to be present during the exam. So in a perfect world, when that happens, we'll have three, we'll have four people in the room. We'll have the patient, we'll have the hygienist, we'll have the dentist, and we'll have the treatment coordinator or whoever's going to be reviewing treatment with the patient uh, so that they can be aware uh, of what was talked about so they understand that same level of communication with the patient. Okay. Thank you. Okay. T-Bone, I have um, a couple questions about... um... Is he still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, because it froze on our screen, but it's okay. Uh, we have a couple questions about the medical billing. So how has your success so far been with medical billing, and do you do it in-house or through a company? T-Bone's gone. Is he gone? I don't see T-Bone anymore. Oh, yeah, T-Bone left. Oh, there you go. There oh, you go, back. T-Bone. Okay. <laughs> you good? Right, so go ahead. Can you hear us? Yeah, I hear you. Okay, perfect. Dude, that was quick. Um, it was about medical billing. Do you use a company? Okay. How's your success with medical billing, or do you do it in-house? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> we're a unique situation. Uh, so let me walk you through medical billing. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and foremost, I think we have to re, uh, recalibrate what we consider success in medical billing. Uh, I think medical billing and dentistry is about getting paid 10 to 15, 20% of the time on the su- procedures that you submit. Um, so I think people have to re- reevaluate what success is. It's not dental insurance, okay? It's not we get paid on 80%, 90% of what we submit. It's just not that. Uh, Two, when I started with medical billing, we were using a third-party service to do it. Uh, And for us, we were using Hutan Shahidi with code uh, to do our medical billing. Mm -hmm. And then as we grew and as we got more comfortable with medical billing, 
uh, we brought in an in-house person. So we have a part-time team member uh, that works for us 20 hours a week uh, that does all of our medical billing directly. Uh, but uh, I, w- I want to, in, uh, for full disclosure and everything, uh, part of that for me is my wife is a medical practitioner and her practice is connected to my practice. So it was a very logical decision for us to insource her medical billing and my medical billing at the same time so that we could both be doing medical billing. So we have a full-time medical biller in our building. Uh, that person spends, technically she's paid half-half, but right now she spends 70, two-thirds or three-quarters of her time on my wife's medical practice and about a third to a quarter of the time on the dental medical billing in our practice. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, awesome. Appreciate it, man. Let's keep yeah, rolling. no problem. Uh, so we good to keep going? Yes. All right, so let's keep rocking and rolling here. I don't know where that picture's coming from. All right, so um, so we've walked through diagnosis. We've walked through some level of influential communication. And now we want to get to where I think, quite frankly, uh, where it really, where most of us really suffer, and that's in firm financial arrangements. Uh, so I want to take some time here uh, to talk about that. So what is firm financial arrangements? For me, it's, it's pretty simple. Uh, I don't perform dentistry on somebody unless we uh, know exactly how much it costs and the patient knows exactly how much it costs and how they're actually going to pay for it. Uh, To me, that's the basis of firm financial arrangements. I will not do the dentistry on them. They should not be sitting in my chair. My assistant should not be giving me the needle. They should not be giving me a handpiece. None of that should be occurring. Quite frankly, they shouldn't be on the schedule Mm-hmm. unless they have firm financial arrangements in place. So let's walk through that, okay? So I want to back up again and go back through the questions. What are we trying to fix with firm financial arrangements? We're trying to reduce accounts receivable. So again, if your patients don't know how much something costs or how they're going to pay for it, don't do the dentistry. That's where accounts receivables come from. We want to have patients say yes to the best, so we have to have something in place that allows people uh, to do more dentistry that they can uh, initially afford or uh, uh, on the face of it afford. And then we want to enroll more dentistry. In other words, I want to do more implants. I want to do more ortho. So we got to have something in place that allows people to say yes to some of those things and not be so insurance dependent. And for me, the first step in firm financial arrangements is having a, a simple financial, I consider it simple financial menu. In other words, uh, a transparent sheet of paper, not the sheet of paper isn't transparent, but it's transparent where you're very clear and upfront with the patients. There's no hidden, you write down exactly what you're doing for them, exactly what the fee is, how much their upfront is. In other words, what the insurance doesn't cover. And then it, it, it calculates out um, how your patients can pay for this. So I think the first step is, is whether, you know, you got to have a financial menu in place. Your patients don't know how to pay for things. They don't know what questions to ask. 90% of your patients don't say yes the day you walk through it, so they don't remember six months later. Uh, so you got to have something that's written for them uh, for them to go through, okay? And then again, having the photographs there so that the patients can staple, paperclip, put it in a folder, whatever, email it to them, whatever you do, uh, so that way they have a copy of their photographs, of their financial menu, and there's some level of correlation of how they come together, okay? So that's the financial menu in a nutshell. Uh, the next thing is understanding the difference in price and affordability. Uh, price is the cost of something. Affordability is how you pay for something. And the truth is, is none of your, very few of your patients uh, can tell you how much Smile Direct Club costs 
Well, what they do tell you is it's $80 a month, but that $80 a month is what? Is that $2,000? Is that $2,500? Nobody really knows. Uh, and that's the, that's the, that's a, that's price versus affordability. Most people can afford $80 a month, but if, if Smile Direct Club got on the TV and said, oh, this is $2,200, most people can't afford or mentally get a block when it comes to that $2,200. So there's a significant difference between price and affordability. And I think when it comes to people saying, my patients can't do the dentistry or they can't afford the dentistry, it's quite frankly, you're not making it affordable for them. And it's not lowering your fees. In fact, I'll argue you can raise your fees and do more dentistry um, if you make it more affordable. So to kind of give you an example of this, I, I break payments, I break dentistry down into three zones. Uh, the pay in full zone, which is the zero to $500. And maybe that number might be zero to $300. In other words, it's $300, uh, anything, you know, between that 500, $300 and below your patients are able to pay in full. And then in dentistry, we have this great opportunity with third party funding. Uh, and that typically is reserved or we reserve it for patients that typically have quote unquote larger treatment plans. And for me, for most practices, a larger treatment plan starts in the $2,000 ballpark for patients. Uh, and that's where patients, most patients, if we think about it, what percentage of patients could whip out a check or swipe a credit card for $2,000 and be very comfortable with it? And the fact is that most can't. So that's where we have third-party funding in place. Companies like Care Credit, Green Sky, Proceed, so many different options out there today. Mm -hmm. But then what I found in my practice was there's this zone between $500 and $2,000 where we're just shit out of luck. You know, either the patient can't afford it or it's too complicated to, to file for third-party processing and all of that. So we were just losing so many cases in that zone. And that zone is where your profits and profitability and productivity in your practice is, is if you can go, and I'm going to come back to what, you know, our families in the motel business. And if we can find a way to increase in our world, it was increase your average daily rate. If you can find a way to increase your average treatment plan completion from 500 to a thousand dollars, that would massively change your practice. So, so for me, what we looked at was, we looked at filling that void with an in-office payment plan, no interest in-office payment plans where I as the dentist become the bank for the patient. So again, within the zones, uh, that zero to $500, we expect full payment up front for the patient. That patient that's going in the $2,000 and above that ballpark, that patient's going to go to third-party funding. And that patient that's in between the $500 and $2,000 ballpark, we're going to be the bank for the patient and do an in-office payment plan for them. And again, all this comes back to the financial menu clearly spells that out for the patient. So um, let's kind of move into um, how we determine. Uh, so now I'm going to focus on that middle zone, that in-office payment plan zone. And uh, so walk you through how, how we do that. Uh, so the first step you got to do is you got to um, establish an overall office limit an office side of things as the bank, basically as a bank, you have to say, I'm willing to lend out X dollars altogether. Okay. So, what I recommend in the beginning and what I started with, uh, and I'm talking about eight, eight, year, eight, eight or so years ago, maybe eight, nine years ago now, uh, is that we, we started with a $10,000 limit. So as an office, altogether, I was willing to fund $10,000 to my patients. 
Okay. So that was the overall arching limit uh, for the office itself was $10,000. Then on a patient perspective, then you have to set a bottom threshold and an upper threshold. In other words, if I have 10,000 to lend out, I don't want to give it all to one person. That would be silly. Uh, if I, you know, I don't want to give it all to a hundred people either. In other words, I don't want to be lending out a hundred dollars at a time. Uh, and, and so we have to have an upper and lower threshold. Uh, so I recommend that lower threshold to be in that three to five hundred dollar ballpark, and I recommend when you're starting that upper threshold to be in that fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar ballpark. So in other words, anything between that three to five hundred dollar range and that fifteen to two thousand dollar fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar range, I'm my my bank is open for business. If you're below that range, my bank is not open for business. If you're above that range, we have a third party bank that's open for business. And then the, on a patient basis or as a practice basis, you need to set maximum time. In other words, how long am I willing to send be the bank? Uh, so again, um, I'm not a real bank, um, so I minimize the time. So for me, what I recommend to people is three and six months and no more than that. Um, and that's a very safe way to get started. So I recommend uh, that you set a total office limit of about $10,000, that you uh, give yourself between $500 and $2,000 per patient, and that you do three and six month payment plans uh, in the very beginning. And then again, we come back to the financial menu, and it's a simple Excel spreadsheet uh, that you can learn how to do on your own, um, and you create a formula, and that formula kind of fills everything out, and you put your team members have it in place, uh, so that way in our practice, every team member has an iPad now, uh, that was as of last couple of months. And so on the iPad, we have Excel. They can sit down and type this out on the iPad, pop in the number, and then the financial options automatically populate. Before we had iPads in every room, we were doing it on the Excel on the desktop. So every operatory has its own computer, and every team member knows how to fill out the financial menu in our practice. So the financial menu is an all-team member thing. It is not just for the financial coordinators. The financial coordinators come into play when we start getting into phased and more, you know, significant dentistry, uh, that's where that happens. So, yes, ma'am. Would you be willing to share that Excel file with us? Uh, not the Excel file. I'll be happy to give you guys a PDF version and then you guys can uh, fill out the formulas yourself. Uh, that part I'm very happy to do. Uh, the Excel version, I don't because uh, you have to figure out what interest rates and what um, third parties you're working with, what your limits are. And frankly, I think um, when somebody gives you something, you have a tendency not to use it correctly. And I think there's a lot of value in it's a pretty simple exercise uh, to formulate the Excel sheet from it. Uh, and it gives you an understanding of how that works. But I'm happy to give you a framework from a PDF file. And then you guys can uh, either pay some uh, some kid to do it, or you can learn. To, I would prefer for you to learn to do it yourself. Uh, I did learn to do it myself. Thank you, <coughs> gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Are there any questions I can answer on the firm financial arrangements? Um, on the financial arrangements, no. Just one about medical billing. They're just asking which procedures are you mainly using for medical billing? Yeah, so um, there should be more questions on the financial arrangements, to be quite honest with you. Uh, but uh, let's answer the medical billing questions. Um, so, uh, 
So again, full disclosure, we teach medical billing at 3D Dentists. Uh, so we, we teach basically uh, the procedures that we, we bill to medical insurance are exams. Uh, so visits, office visits slash exams. Uh, we do uh, devices. So in other words, uh, occlusal guards, TMD guards, sleep devices, all of those things. We do basic surgery. Uh, so that would be like... Um, uh, like granulation removal, wisdom teeth, things along those lines, and then radiology. So in other words, PAs, uh, 3D CBCT, uh, things like that. And then the last one that I don't do a lot of, but we do teach is to build medical insurance for trauma-related dentistry. Uh, so th- those are the five areas uh, that we focus on. And the vast majority of my billing in my practice is going to be uh, office visits slash exams, sleep apnea devices, and surgical procedures. Uh, and those three things, and I'm sorry, let me back up. Office visits, sleep apnea, radiology, and surgical visits. Those four things cover 99% of what we're billing to medical insurance. Okay. And then Laura asks, are you holding credit card information? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, we are not like directly holding credit card information. Uh, the We use a what's called recurring payment plans. So your mm-hmm. credit card processor has uh, almost all of them have recurring payment plan options. And so you swipe the card and then the credit card company themselves will store the credit card number and then they'll automate automatically charge the credit card every month. Uh, I, I took that slide out. I apologize. Uh, that is one of the critical components. It's got to be automated. It's not dependent on my team remembering to run the credit card every month. It's not, it's not an option even for our patients to uh, send us a check or whatever. It's credit card only mm-hmm. and we have to swipe it. It has to be on file. It has to be automated uh, and, and all of that. So, uh, so that's, that's an important aspect of it. Thank you for asking that question. Okay. And then Janine asks, we're getting a lot of questions now about perfect. That's what I expected. So Janine asks, do your hygienists and assistants present the financial arrangements? They are capable. So, uh, so the answer, the short answer to that is yes. So, um, Again, remember, everything is step-by-step in your process. And I think that, to me, is about the clarity. Your clarity has to be is what is the role of each team member in, the, in your practice. So in our, in our philosophy, it's, it's each team member can do everything um, and within limits. So uh, what we do in our practice is we'll, we'll essentially divide our patients into three categories. Category of no treatment. In other words, they just need a hygiene visit to come back. Minor treatment and major treatment. Uh, so no treatment is pretty self-explanatory, pretty straightforward. Major treatment will always go to one of our treatment coordinators. So a dedicated person in the practice will sit down with the patient and work through them on that. And then we have what's called minor treatment. And minor treatment is something that every hygienist assistant uh, and front office team member, basically everybody in the office is comfortable uh, going, putting together a minor treatment plan uh, in the practice management software and putting together a minor financial menu and going through that with the patient. So that, that is our overall philosophy in the office of how we like to execute that. Okay, thank you. And then Aman asks, are you just taking a risk when offering the financial arrangements from your quote unquote, your bank, or how do you know the patient won't disappear? You don't know. Uh, it's no different. I mean, uh, so again, so, so much, so, so much, much of this is based on demographics and, uh, uh, let's let's walk back. Let me see if I can um, hang tight. Let me see if I can find the slide that kind of uh, here. Um, so let's walk through this a little bit better. Okay. Um, 
So uh, a couple of rules. And again, the, these are all phenomenal questions and they're very normal questions uh, that we're having here. Okay. Mm-hmm. So number one it has to be automated, it has to be credit card on file. Uh, let me go back to that credit card on file for a second. It needs to be with the company. Uh, you as the dental practice, uh, you need to be compliant. If you store credit card numbers, you, it's very complicated. There's a lot of rules and laws on storing credit card numbers. So don't store credit card numbers. Third party that out uh, to your credit card company. Uh, and then we require down payment when scheduling, uh, not you know when scheduled. So in other words, we don't schedule our patients for this for their treatment until we have firm financial arrangements in place. And if they're choosing for me to be the bank, then I require down payment. Uh, so for, for us, it's pretty simple. Um, on our three-month plan, it's a 25% down. On our six-month plan, it's 33% down. So, you know, we're trying to, to a certain degree, with all these rules, okay, and I'm not a rule follower myself, but with all these rules, we're trying to eliminate the bad. Okay, and the truth is, is 95% are going to be good. So you have to go into this knowing that you're going to have a two, three, four, 5% no pay rate. Okay, and again, coming back to that no pay rate, what is no pay? It's none of your patients should even be scheduled without paying something. Okay, so it's not like it's a 100% loss. Worst case scenario, you get 25% and that's it. And then they totally disappear. Worst case scenario. But the reality is, is most of us are in-network PPO providers or work with insurance. And so we're going to get some money from the insurance company. We're going to get there 50%, 40 to 70%, somewhere in the ballpark. And then we're going to get 25% of the remainder from the patient up front. So we're really minimizing our risk uh, in this scenario. Okay. Gotcha. And then Norma asks, do you split the payment for the amount of appointments a procedure has? So if a denture is four visits, is it four payments? No, it's uh, pay up front. So in other words, uh, let's, let's do this very simple. Uh, when I commit to uh, doing the dentistry, uh, that's when you commit to the firm financial arrangements. Whether it takes six visits, six months to do the dentistry, um, you commit for the entire amount up front, and then we do the payment plans, either three months or six months. There's none of this, oh, your treatment's nine months, so we're gonna let you pay over nine months. Doesn't exist. It's pretty, it's pretty simple, okay? It's, it's three months or six months. It starts the day we schedule your treatment. So if your dentures, let's call it $1,000, I don't know what the right number is, we don't do removable in our practice, but if your dentures is $1,000 and today's April 1st, your arrangement is for $1,000 today, and then you can either choose to pay it off over three months or six months, and of that $1,000, we're going to take 25 or 33% down the day we schedule to get started. Okay. Well, that's really good. And I believe this question was was answered, but just to reiterate, Priya asked, most of the current theory I've heard is to not finish treatment until a dollar is collected to avoid getting burned. Do you incorporate this or do you just trust your patients will pay? Well, um, look, this is all going to be individual at the end of the day. It's your business, Mm -hmm. run it the way you want. What I will tell you, your legal and ethical obligation is when you start dentistry, you have to finish it whether your patient pays or doesn't pay, okay? So that's your ethical obligation. You can't leave your patient in temps because they didn't pay. If they turn you into the board, the board is going to make you finish that treatment, bottom line, okay? So, and, and then it's going to come back to that clarity. Why are we working on people that don't want to pay? I mean, why are we creating, why, we are creating our own problems. So at the end of the day, we have to believe in abundance, Okay, the abundance is, is there's plenty of patients. I firmly believe there's plenty of patients out there. And then we're going to create systems or frameworks in place that 
that patients fit into. And I will adjust my frameworks when, when we're losing people, but I'm not going to adjust my framework for one or two people here and there. It's just, it's just, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. So um, yeah, so we'll, we'll do a filling today and let you pay. I mean, not that a filling would, I mean, again, if you, I'd love to get that. I'd love to get more clarity on the question because what are we really doing? I mean, if it's implant therapy, I mean, we don't finish implant therapy for four to six months anyway. So they're going to be finished before they pay. Uh, so if it's a crown, we do crowns in a single visit. You know, 50% is going to come from insurance. The patient's going to pay 25% up front. They're going to get their crown today. They owe me another, you know, couple of hundred, 300 bucks. And, you know, maybe they'll pay, maybe they won't. But 95% of them do pay. Do you normally check their credit history before offering financial payment plans? No, the credit card company did before they gave them a credit card. <laughs> I like that. That was good. For Invisalign, what kind of down payment do you expect? Do you have a different financial option? 25% or 33% depending on how they pay for it. Okay. And then within what dollar range do most of your treatment plans fall under? Do most of my treatment plans fall under? It's a very, very complicated question. <laughs> so um, me personally, uh, again, I'm in my practice, I'm doing a lot of imp- me personally in the, in our building, in our practice, I'm doing the implant sleep and ortho work. So my treatment plans typically start two, three, four thousand $4,000 and go up to $50,000. Um, as a practice as a whole, the majority of our treatment plans fall in that 500 to $2,000 ballpark. Gotcha. All righty. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. T-Bone, what are your thoughts on in-office membership plans? Um, they're great ideas, I think. I mean, I don't do any, so I, don't, I can't speak from experience. Um, I, I, I can't speak from experience. I think, um, I, again, my question is what problem are we trying to solve? You know, are we trying to solve being insurance-free? Then, sure. If your problem is you're trying to get more patients, just take more insurances, and that, that'll pretty much take care of Look, I, I don't view insurance as bad. Um, I, I, because again, insurance is about the general dentistry. And for me, having a buying process, firm financial arrangements, a good diagnostic process, good communication and good firm financial arrangements, we're able to take our, our MetLife patients and get them to do quadrant dentistry because we're finding a way for them to make it affordable for them. And I think we're missing the boat. I just firmly think we're creating, we're complicating our lives and we don't need to complicate them. Just, just stick to what works. And what we know what works is find a way to make it affordable for your patients. And you don't need all this fancy nonsense that, that takes up mental energy to implement. I mean, I don't even know how to implement a membership plan. Who has it? Who doesn't? What does it mean? What regular? I, mean, I don't, I, again, I don't think it's a bad idea because I don't know anything about it, but we just haven't had a need for it in our practice. Got it. Got it. Okay. And why would you choose an in-office um, zero interest plan versus utilizing a company like Compassionate Finance? Oh, sure. You, uh, I have no, no, I love Bruce Baird. He's a friend of mine. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, in fact, if you look on this, uh, on my financial menu, you'll see Compassionate Healthcare Services on there. Uh, it's a choice. Uh, but again, Patients have a tendency not to want to go to third-party services. They don't. They don't love that. It's it's a barrier at the end of the day. So uh, again, if if you don't have a if you're doing all the dentistry you want to do, and your schedule is full and patients are paying you, don't do any of this stuff. It, it, just just skip the in-office payment plan part of the financial menu is critically important, I believe. 
but if, if you don't have an issue with patients accepting treatment, then don't change anything. But what I'm telling you is that you're, we're missing out on a lot of patients in the $500 to $2,000 ballpark. And if we had our schedule full of quadrant dentistry, <laughs> we wouldn't need membership plans. We wouldn't need all this other stuff. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a different way of looking at things. I think, I, I, frankly, frankly speaking, and, and I say this to your group very specifically, we're being sold a bunch of bullshit that we don't need because we're trying to solve problems that we don't have, okay? And we're listening to people who have a lot of shit to sell us. And what I'm trying to say is, is just going back to fundamental basics will solve 90% of our problems. Gotcha. I like that. Excuse my language. <laughs> no, I like that a lot. All righty, man. So we go keep going? Yes. Yes. All right. So financial menu. And then the last thing we're going to talk about is uh, scheduling here, okay? So scheduling is critically important, okay? And what, what I try to teach uh, or what I try to just kind of disseminate out there is a procedure-driven scheduling process versus a production-driven schedule process. And, and there's, a, there's a difference in the two. Uh, so the traditional block scheduling is a uh, rock, sand, water, water, sand, rock schedule, where you, you block out times for rocks, which are X dollars and above, and then you have some time for sand, and you just fill shit in everywhere for now I must be getting passionate. I'm starting to curse a little bit more. And then you just fill the water in wherever you want. And, and to me, that's what leads to scheduling disasters. In other words, that's what leads to working super hard and working multiple columns. And, and I don't think dentistry is designed to be that way or should be that way or needs to be that way. So instead, we, we work on a uh, reverse engineering procedure-driven process. And what I mean by that is pretty simple. In other words, what we'll do is we'll block times for procedures. Uh, so for example, I know our practice wants to do 40 new patients per month. Okay, so that means step number one to doing 40 new patients per month is what? Scheduling 40 new patient blocks in your schedule. So we'll diagram out that we need 40 blocks for new patients each month. And then we'll diagram out when and what days we want those to be. So we'll make that happen that I know that I want to do 15 implants per month, let's say. So then what do I do? I block out 15 implant appointments in my schedule. I know that I want to do five ortho cases per month. We'll block out five ortho start cases per month. I know we want to do 15 sleep devices per month. So we're going to block out 15 sleep records appointments. And so that's what I mean by procedure driven. In other words, we reverse engineer our schedule and then we allow patients to flow and fit in to that. So, and I take care of the big things first. Okay. And then whatever time is left, now that time's available for what I consider non-essential dentistry. Now that kind of fits in the times and that'll be like fillings. And, and to me, crowns fall into that non-essential dentistry at this stage of my career. For my, for my associate partner, that's not the case. Fillings and crowns and those kind of things are an important part of his schedule. And if I know that on average we're doing six, five, six, seven root canals per month, then we need to block out the, the blocks for five to seven root canals per month. So we'll reverse engineer our schedule based on procedures and then fit patients in to those times. And by doing that, by being procedure driven, then the production takes care of itself because those procedures take care of our production. And, and to kind of, for those of you that aren't maybe as far along as I am, 
in all of this. Uh, maybe your blocks are going to be not so many implants and not so many all of these things. Then start blocking out quadrants. In other words, I want to do five quadrants per month. So block out two hours for five, five two-hour blocks to do quadrants. Let's say you want to do sedation. Then block out two sedation times per month or one per week or whatever the number is. Wherever you're at today, what's the next step? And then wherever you're at the next step, what's the step after that? So that should be changing on a quarterly, monthly basis based on how things are going and then let everything else kind of fill in. So I, that that's kind of how we're doing uh, block scheduling in our office. So for example, I know that uh, I try to go to the surgical center to do a full arch implant case once a month. So we block one Tuesday per month that I have to go to the surgical center. And if we don't have that patient, then I don't go to the surgical center and I don't go to the office. Uh, so because I want to be that committed I want to be that committed that, that it's that important to me that we're going to fill that time slot with that procedure or I'm not going to do the dentistry. And again, that's going to come back to where you're at financially, where you're at in your career, how important this is to you. And I know many of you think like it's easy for you to say this, you've been doing this for 20 years, but there's a reason I've gotten to this point is because I've been doing it this way for so long and uh, and and I've been committed to uh, I've been committed to creating that, and that's that's part of the reason that that's happening. So, so that's a kind of the block scheduling uh, uh, talk there on that. T-Bone, when would you release the blocks then if you were us? Like 24 Yeah, hours? so um, it's a good question. When would I release the blocks? Uh, so three to four days in advance, uh, we, we'd probably release the blocks. Um, yeah, three to four days in advance. Certain things, I won't ever release them. Um, so for me, for example, uh, I don't release my Tuesday, my once a month Tuesday sedation, uh, uh, surgery center block, uh, because I, I want my team to feel the pain of, uh, of not having that for me so that they, they know, because part of it is, is if you make it easy for your team to get away with not finding what you want, then they will be easy to find what you want. So there's gotta be some pain for you and for your team associated with that. So uh, there's certain blocks that I don't ever release. I just say I won't do anything. Um, and, and that's my opportunity to coach team members, my opportunity to do better, better uh, exams and hygiene. Uh, that's my opportunity to kind of get a mental break from everything that's going on. That's your opportunity to do. Uh, when I was in the practice startup phase, I was doing my own QuickBooks. I was doing all my own accounting, not the filing part, but the bookkeeping part. And that was my opportunity to do that. Uh, so, um, you know, that's my opportunity to go out and, 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 and meet other physicians. That's my opportunity to go out and meet other dentists and say, hey, if you have emergencies, I'm available for you uh, when I was in the startup phase. So that's how you build in those times that we say, oh, if I had time, I could do this. And the truth is, is how much more valuable is it to go out and do those things versus doing a $100 filling? Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I believe there's a value in what we do. So I try to be pretty strict about those things. Okay. Quick question from Farhana. Do you have a bonus incentive for your team members? We do. We do. Uh, um, we have it in place. It's not easy to make. A bonus should be, in my opinion, hard to make. Um, I pay my people well. Uh, they'll all tell you I don't pay them enough. They, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you I pay them all too much. So somewhere in the middle is the balance. Uh, but we have a, a bonus program in place. And I break our bonus program. I encourage uh, bonus programs to be two things. 
Um, one, there has to be an economic-based bonus program. And one, there has to be a behavioral-based bonus program. And the economic-based bonus program in our practice is directly related to what we collect. We have a goal. If we collect more than that, you get some money. Uh, and then to kind of keep it pretty simple on that end. The behavioral-based bonus program in our practice is pretty simple as well. I want to I promote behaviors that help grow the practice. So, for example, in our practice, we have a goal of doing uh, five patient testimonial videos per month. We have a goal of doing 10 Google reviews per month. And we have a goal of doing uh, uh, five team member Q&A videos per month. So if my team members complete those and have those completed, I put a dollar amount in the pot and they split that up. Uh, based on the behavior program. So I, I don't want everything to be, and it's not always a dollar amount. Sometimes it's a uh, a, uh, a group outing to uh, the nail salon or whatever that's called. I, I participate in that too. Uh, or maybe it's a group massage or, you know, a gift certificate for massages. It's not always money-based. I'm not a big believer in always making everything uh, money-based for team members. I think it trains the wrong mentality in team members. Gotcha. All right. Appreciate it. Let's keep rolling. I think uh, Farhana has another question here. How do you retain staff? Uh, I don't call them staff. That's one thing, uh, which seems to be one of the challenges owners have. Uh, staff are people that serve you. Uh, growing up in India, we all had staffs. I, didn't, I was only two when I left. But staffs are people that serve you. We're a team. We work together to achieve goals. And I think uh, so much of retaining people comes to culture. And that's establishing a culture in your practice. That's establishing a relationship with your people, knowing who they are, what they are. I think we focus too much on trying to find the right person to hire. And the real answer is you hire, hire kind of quickly and you fire quickly. So in other words, you hire people. I can trick you into anything for a couple of times you meet me. And then I find out that I'm, you find out I'm not the right person for you. And then we're too slow to fire. We need to be much quicker to let people go. Uh, and I know this is not the right time to be talking about so much of this, but it's the truth. Okay. Um, and then culture, culture, and then asking people, what is it that drives people? Like I know in my practice, I know I can tell you all my team members and what's going on in their life. I know, for example, uh, Michelle in my office just bought a home. So I know that, uh, you know, getting that and doing all of that is a driver for her. I know that, for example, one of my team members, you know, they want to have a little bit more time off. Their husband gets more time off than she gets off. And though they want to have a little bit more time off. So part of it, it's really engaging with your team members and understanding and, 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 and finding the right, I think finding the right people and finding the right people is about being clear about who you are and what you want to be. You know, what what is, who is your practice? You know, if you were to try to tell somebody what your practice is about in a couple of three minutes, could you do it? Or is it, hey, I just want to, I want to be everything to everybody. And then you're going to have so many of these problems. And I'm not saying you need to niche down and be implant only, cosmetic only. I'm not saying all those things. I'm just saying culturally decide who you want to be. You know, make, make that ultimately clear about who you are and what you want to be. And then, then keep finding people to fit in that place. And when you find somebody that's not the right fit, let them go. I mean, let them, let them go cause, let them go be a wonderful person for somebody else. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's to me. And, and you're talking to somebody who I don't want to say I have turnover issue, but we have turnover issue uh, because I, I'm unwavering on, on my personality. My personality is the practice personality. Uh, if, you, if I don't like something you say, I'm going to tell you. 
I'm probably going to be a little bit rough around the edges sometimes because I'm very matter of fact on these things. And some people aren't cut out for that. And I, I can't change who I am with, for those things. Gotcha. And Aman says, being a young dentist, I feel they don't respect you when you are young versus when you have been established. What is your advice for a young dentist, especially when you buy a practice with older team? Um, well, I think you have to integrate yourself with the team. Uh, I think, uh, you know, my, I think a lot of my success is, is boiled around having the right people around me, whether that's luck, uh, which I believe a lot of it is, um, but a lot of it's by design. And I think uh, establishing a rapport with people, not being their friends necessarily, but establishing a rapport, establishing guidelines. I, I firmly believe people want to be led. People want to know the rules. They want to know the boundaries and they want to be led. And you can't lead by fear, but you also have to, you have to establish that you know who you are, where you're going to go, and people need to know what fits within that. So, you know, I believe that's Amon. Uh, I would tell you to establish, to, in your own mind, take this time and figure out who it is you are. What, what are you trying to be? What patients are you trying to serve? What does your ideal teammate look like around you to help you achieve that plan and vision that you have? And then where are people falling short and where are their opportunities to grow? And, and so much of that comes from, are we communicating with our team members about opportunities to grow, where they fall short, what they're doing well? And that's an area that I need to work on personally is helping, is, is telling people what they're doing well, because I don't focus so much on the good. I focus so much on what could be better, not the bad, but what could be better. That's, you know, but that's my personality and I, and I make people uncomfortable and I'm a driver. And uh, so I don't know really how to answer your question other than it really starts with good leadership and leadership is knowing people, connecting with people, not being afraid. Uh, there's a book I want you to, um, let me see if I can find it real quick. Mm -hmm. There's a book I want you to read. Um, uh, it's called The Good Authority uh, by Jonathan Raymond. It's, uh, it's $11.44. Um, if you can't afford that, let me know. I'll give you $11.44. Uh, it's $6.99 on Kindle. Uh, so it's a great book, Good Authority, How to Become the Leader Your Team is Waiting For by Jonathan Raymond. Um, so it's, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it walks through the accountability dial, how to make mentions to your, patients, your team members, how to hold them accountable for things uh, without leading by fear. Uh, so it's a fantastic book. Uh, and another book I would recommend is called The Coaching Habit by Michael Bunyay-Stanier. It's a fantastic book. Um, and and uh, there's a lot to be learned on this. This this So much of that comes from time. And, and I want to be clear on this um, this age thing. When I started my private practice, I was tw when I started my practice as an owner, I was 23 years old. Okay, so I was the 100% owner in a startup practice, age 23, and I was by far the youngest person in my team members, okay? So I'm speaking from a place of experience, is that it takes time. You will find your way as long as you make an attempt to find your way. All right, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. T-Bone, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, I know, I know it's always, I mean, you always have so much wisdom to, to impart on us and, and we really do, we appreciate, um, we appreciate all the content that you produce via your podcast, via your, your lectures. And if, 
if this is something that we're, we're going to be um, consuming, continuing education um, this way, we would love to have you again. Or even, have you ever considered um, making an online course for your billing specifically that we could have? Yeah, you know, um, <clears throat> so I think the great example here is I think with all this stuff going on, uh, we as 3D dentists, as a business, we have to rethink how we're doing things. Just like as a practitioner, you're going to have to rethink how you're doing things. So uh, one of our goals uh, over the next, because I think we're going to be out of work for another four weeks, uh, maybe more, uh, is to try to get all of our programs online or in an online format. Uh, so we're working diligently to do that. Uh, I'm a perfectionist, so I got to get out of my own way a little bit and mm-hmm. allow that to happen. Uh, but we're going to get almost all of our training programs online in the next uh, few months. Awesome. Oh, that's going to be awesome, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, T-Bone, for your time, man. We really, truly appreciate it, especially during these times. <laughs> yes. Really nice and refreshing. So we appreciate it, man. Thank you. So, guys, if anybody watching, um, if there's more questions, hopefully, T-Bone, you can stick around in the chat section and answer some of those questions. Um, and at the same time, if you guys have any more questions, just feel free to keep asking, and then we'll bug T-Bone to answer them. And I'm happy to I'm happy to help people, but just know that my help comes with no nonsense bullshit. Okay, I mean, I just I'm going to tell you how I feel. So don't hesitate to reach out to me. Uh, don't be afraid. I'm a I, I, I'm a grizzly bear on the outside, a massive teddy bear on the inside, uh, because I do want good for everybody. But I also um, I also believe that uh, we can't just be nice all the time. We have to be unfortunately firm uh, in our lives and to people. So I'm happy to be that uncomfortable firm person.